It's good to be back with you this evening. Thank you, Red Bank Revival, for uh, sharing with us many of those songs that take us back a lot of years and remind us of the faithfulness of God. Tonight we're going to return to Joshua chapter 5. And as you turn there, if, uh, if you were not able to come eat with us and you missed the happy birthday salute that Donnie is so famous, or shall I say infamous, for doing, might as well preach the truth. Um, there's some things in the Bible that are more difficult to understand than others. If you've ever struggled to understand the coming great tribulation, just listen to him sing that one time and you'll have a much better idea. Uh, that, of course, is no indictment on his singing. He, he makes it bad on purpose in uh, the spirit of Edith Bunker. So if you haven't heard any Gene Stapleton lately, he can hook you up. Well, tonight, as we go to Joshua chapter 5, I want to share with you a message entitled, When You've Arrived, But You Haven't Arrived. There is a tendency in our lives that when we go through any major transition, that we assume that we have arrived, and that's all we need to do. The reason why some people's marriages suffer is because they were chasing after marriage like the dog who was chasing the Volkswagen. And he ran, and he ran, and he ran, and when he got to the stop sign, he finally caught it. And then he had no idea what to do with it. Uh, Some people chase so hard after the idea of marriage that once they are married, they feel like, well, mission accomplished. Not realizing uh, that, hey, uh, this has only just begun. Uh, this, this is the front door, uh, not the back door, if you will. Uh, when you become a Christian, unfortunately, to our shame, there have been uh, many, even many pastors who for a lot of years acted as though someone coming to faith in Christ was mission accomplished. All we need to do was find them a seat to set in and move on to someone else, not realizing that this is just the very beginning. Uh, we, we've got uh, untold amounts of time to continue to pour into them. Now that they know Jesus, what does it mean to walk with Jesus? For you as a church, there will be a temptation, whether you realize it or not, that when the next pastor comes to have the mindset of mission accomplished. And here's how it looks. Uh, I have seen, in fact, I pastored a church once where the greatest work they ever did was before I got there. And once I got there, you began to see people take a back seat. And they got comfortable. And they began to kick it in neutral. As if to say without saying, well, the preacher's here now. That's his job. While that is a popular notion, you'll never find that notion in the Scriptures. Uh, You will find that he is called to be the under-shepherd who leads you, who cares for you, who equips you for the work of ministry, which says this, you will actually have more time to do ministry than he will because he needs to be spending so much time equipping you. It's like the drill sergeant in the army. He's not going to see as much time in battle he might have in the past, but now he is regularly training hundreds and thousands of men to send them out to the front lines to do battle. Now that the people of Israel 
have crossed into the promised land, it would be easy to say, wow, after 40 years of wandering, after 40 years of seeing the best of times and the worst of times, we're finally home. Uh, Let's kick our feet up and retire. Now keep in mind, there was only two old people left in the crowd would not have been a retirement because of age, as though the Bible really endorses such an idea. It would be because if they thought all it was was about receiving what God was going to give you, what else was there to do? The answer to that is to worship Him, to serve Him, to love Him, to go wherever he calls you to go, to do whatever he calls you to do, realizing that though we have arrived in this place that we have longed for for so many decades, this is not the end. This is just the end of one chapter and the beginning of another. It's interesting, the first thing that we see that comes up in chapter 5. We read through verse 1 this morning. And when we understand what it means to arrive physically to a location, but not to have arrived spiritually, I want to share with you tonight, uh, in this passage that we find, three requirements for the next chapter, for the next phase of ministry, for the next chapter of life. And the first one seems a a bit distant to us because he spends more verses in this chapter talking about circumcision than anything else. We would scratch our heads and say, wow, was it really that big of a deal? Well, let's read together. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. So Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land uh, which the Lord had sworn to to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Their children, whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them along the way. Now when they had finished circumcising all the nation, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would speak now as your servants are listening. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see the significance of although we have arrived at certain chapters, we've not arrived home yet. That as long as there's breath in our bodies, Lord, you've got a reason for us being here. Help us to consider that tonight. 
Help us to take it to heart. And by your grace, Father, help us to go out and serve and worship and live as those who refuse to retire, as those who refuse to quit, as those who refuse to exist for nostalgia of past days, but who live with the joy and the excitement of what you're going to do from this day forward. Father, I pray now that you'd cleanse me, that you'd speak through me, that your word would fall on good soil, on hearts that not only hear it, but who receive it and who want to live it out. God, use your word tonight in all its authority to revive your people. Use it tonight, Father, if there's one here that's lost without Christ, to save them, cleansing them from their sins, making them a brand new person in Christ Jesus. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That first call, that first necessity, is the necessity of holiness. Why was this issue of circumcision such a big deal? If we go all the way back to Abraham, when God called him to circumcise the men, he circumcised men of every age, Uh, men who, not only the Jews, those who served in his house, everyone was set apart unto God. Now, there is no New Testament parallel to that. Some have tried to say baptism, but certainly that's not right because believer's baptism is only for those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ. They circumcised those infant boys from the eighth day to say, these are marked For God. It was a simple act of obedience that says, as we later uh, read in the New Testament, that we are a people for God's own possession. And notice that as Joshua, their leader, we talked this morning about the importance of a leader and how sometimes leaders have to have to tackle difficult issues. When was the last day you had that was like this one for Joshua? I don't even want to think about that for too long. Not an easy day. Not a popular day. But a necessary day. Because if you belong to God, you need to be a people who obey God, even in things that may seem like technicalities. Uh, Even... Uh, in, in, in times that it seems like God was doing too much, such as the man who reached out to steady the Ark of the Covenant and when he touched it, he died. Why? Because when God says don't touch, he means don't touch. When God says don't, he means don't. By the same token, when God says you must do this, it is not a suggestion. It is a commandment. Uh, we could go back to see a very... Uh, a very powerful passage uh, along the same line, all the way back in Exodus chapter uh, 4, beginning in verse 24. Uh, here is Moses getting ready to go about the business of confronting Pharaoh, and we find this very interesting incident in verse 24 of Exodus 4. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Now here's the man that God is leading to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, and God's getting ready to kill him. Why? Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. 
So he let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Uh, I had a, a professor in seminary. That was his example of preaching a hard text. What do you do with those three verses that seem to come out of nowhere where all of a sudden God is sending Moses, but he's going to kill Moses if he doesn't obey even in the small details? You see, we live in a day and time where we are, we are very big on generalities. Uh, we don't care too much about uh, details. I, I heard even a Christian comedian say recently that in, uh, in Shakespeare's time, Shakespeare had a working vocabulary of 54,000 words. Wow. We as modern day Americans have a working vocabulary of but 3,000. My wife likes to uh, watch uh, British shows like As Time Goes By. She said, have you noticed the words that they use in conversation? It reminds us that we're pretty notorious for dumbing things down to the simplest, most undetailed ways even of communicating. And the danger is not just in our communication, but when we approach the things of God, we tend to approach them with how little can we do and still be okay. It was kind of like when I was in elementary school, we had this understanding. My two sisters were valedictorians. <coughs> My parents didn't have such high hopes for me. But there was this understanding, you stay above sea level. You know what I mean. <clears throat> I remember getting a very bad spanking one time, and my dad made the paddles because I made a C in the fifth grade. Oh, he didn't tolerate making those kind of grades, especially when he realized it was not an academic challenge. It's laziness. The next time I came home with two Cs, buddy, I got off the bus crying and somehow in the grace of God managed to avoid the thrashing the second time around. See, I had figured out most of the time, do just enough to get by. There is a great danger among modern Christians to want to do just enough and to cover that by speaking about grace. And wow, we, we can't say too much about grace. But we err when we begin to use grace as the license for worldliness. To act as though, well, you know, I'm saved by grace, so it really doesn't matter what I say or what I do or how I carry myself or whether I really take the things of God seriously because I'm saved by grace, I'm going to make it home anyway. It's the reason why most Baptists have quit using the phrase, once saved, always saved. Not because it's not true. I, I, would, I would lay down my life for that doctrine. But because it was so tortured for many, many years that people thought that they could uh, profess Jesus and go out and be just as drunk and immoral as they'd ever been, and everything's okay because once saved, always saved. Well, amen, but the key word is saved. Uh, whether there's really been a work of grace and not merely a profession from your mouth. You see, holiness is what this is all about. While it's just a, a physical alteration, it's a very significant physical alteration because it is supposed to reflect the circumcision of your heart, something that they weren't doing. 
that, that even for those Gentiles who would later come to faith in Christ under the new covenant, uh, there were those who tried to tell, oh, you got to be circumcised like the Old Testament Jews. And they stood up and said, no, that's not a requirement. But the circumcision of the heart is non-negotiable. If your heart has not been altered by the Spirit of God, applying the Word of God, you are lost. There's no two ways about it. But if you have been changed from the inside out, what's on the inside shows up on the outside. That's even true of bad things. Even something as horrific as cancer, if it's on the inside, it's eventually going to rear its head on the outside. Well, friend, when good things happen on the inside, oh my goodness, when a, when a lady is great with child, you can't hide that long. Oh my goodness. It doesn't matter how much she wants to keep uh, wearing those teeny bopper blue jeans. It amazes me how many young moms uh, want to keep packing themselves and act as though they're not pregnant. Uh, Tim and I are letting it hang out, and we're not pregnant. (laughs) You can't keep that hidden for long. When there's something good, when there's life on the inside, listen to me, church, it's going to show up on the outside. And so, no wonder they took the issue of circumcision so seriously because it was supposed to be a physical indicator of a spiritual reality. Hear these words from Peter in 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, listen to this, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance. In other words, don't act like you did when you were lost. Be like the Holy One who called you. Be holy, but like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. He didn't say give it your best shot. He didn't say, if you really want to be one of those really super serious Christians, be holy. No, it's non-negotiable. Because you have been sanctified. Uh, That's a Bible term, but you need to know it. Uh, That's not just a church term. It's one that comes right off the pages of Scripture. It means you were set apart unto Christ when you were justified, when you were saved, when you were declared righteous in the sight of a holy God. And when he set you apart, he also set you on a track where you would, you would be becoming more and more like Christ and less and less like the world. A process that I don't believe the Bible teaches is completed here on this earth, but someday will be completed in the presence of Jesus Christ. And if God is doing that work, which Paul referred to in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. Wow, that is where my confidence is. My confidence is not in me. Man, there's days when I'm lazy. There's days when I'm full of myself. There's days when I got my feelings on my shoulder. There are days when I'm moping over regrets. All kinds of, I got more issues than Time Magazine, as I told someone earlier. So my confidence is not in me. My confidence is in him. That he began this work, and he's going to finish it. But that means if God is doing a work on the inside, it ought to be evident on the outside. 
to be holy in all you do. Uh, secondly, uh, the second necessity is not only holiness, but that holiness uh, comes, both comes from and propels us toward worship. If you look at, um, at verse 10, now, now don't miss in verse 9 the redemptive work that just was spoken of there. When God said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal, to, to roll away to this day. So when God set a standard, he provided for it to be met. Do you know that's what was happening at Calvary? That God had a perfect demand for a perfect sacrifice for sinners, and he did not wait for us to come up with it. And, and dis, despite what the old song says, uh, they didn't search through heaven to find a Savior. God already knew who that Savior was going to be, the Bible says, from the foundation of the world. And God met his holy standard with his own sacrifice, his very own son. But notice in verse 10, the necessity of worship. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. <clears throat> on the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. The Passover, it had been 40 years since the, the original Passover. When God had sent uh, Moses uh, to tell Pharaoh to let my people go, and with every refusal, there was another Passover leading, uh, or excuse me, another plague leading up to the ultimate plague, the death of the firstborn. And you remember the story that they were supposed to take a one-year-old lamb without spot or blemish. Uh, they were to, uh, to sacrifice it, to pour out its blood, to put it on the doorpost, on the lintel. So when the death angel passed over, if he saw the blood, he would keep passing over. Otherwise, he would kill the firstborn, the firstborn son, the firstborn cattle. It didn't matter. And on that very night, God redeemed his people. That by the blood of the Lamb, he set them free from 430 years of slavery. And as they went, they were allowed to plunder the Egyptians as they went. So they didn't just walk out with the shirt on their back. They walked out with great wealth as they went. So when they observed the Passover, they looked backward at the redemption that God had provided, not only in getting them out of Egypt, but even in issues such as parting the Red Sea, uh, when these uh, numerous, numerous people were between the sea and Pharaoh's army that was coming after them, God put a cloud behind them and an open sea in front of them, and they walked through on dry land. And every time they celebrated that Passover, they were to look back and to celebrate their redemption their release from bondage. But oh, can I tell you something? Something that they didn't fully realize at the time until Jesus came. The Passover was doing something much greater. 
And that was looking forward to a coming redemption. It wouldn't be a redemption from physical slavery. It wouldn't be a redemption merely from physical death. It would be a redemption from more than hunger and thirst that Jesus would come as the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world to pour out his blood so that they might be redeemed from eternal condemnation. Oh, when we worship him, we are reminded again and again and again that it's not about us. It would be accurate to say that every time a church has a problem, ultimately it's a worship problem. Uh, It's a problem of not worshiping Christ, not exalting Christ, but instead, notice we don't, we like to think we're neutral. You know, I don't want to go all fanatical, crazy about worship. I'm, you know, I'm sort of somewhere in here in the middle. The truth is, if we're not exalting Jesus, we're exalting someone else. And it's probably the guy I shave with. I'm probably spending a lot of time. When I'm not worshiping him as I should, I'm giving a lot of glory to me. I'm spending a lot of time thinking about how things have not gone my way. And, you know, I've, I've been here for a while, and, you know, I've been serving, and I've been so faithful. How could people treat me like that? How could they talk to me like that? Sound familiar? I know it sounds familiar. I've had those conversations with myself at times. Not because I'm crazy, but because I'm sinful. But, boy, when I get my eyes on Jesus... It was about 10.45 last night, and I was working through uh, what I was going to preach on, and I was uh, listening to gospel music. I just had that sense, man, somebody's praying for me right now. Whoever you were, thank you. Wow, when we worship God through his word, by, by the way, his word is the high point of our worship. Our music, our prayer, everything we do is called in or out of bounds according to thus saith the Lord. But man, when you put them all together, when you read the word, when you sing the word, when you pray the word, when you give according to the word, wow, all of a sudden my obsession with me has drifted out into the hills and hollows and my eyes are on Jesus. And as I said this morning, that's the one thing we'll do for all eternity. Oh, I'd love to talk about the Great Commission, but we won't be making disciples in eternity for the disciples will all have been made. We won't be doing evangelism. Uh, We won't be discipling because God's people will be glorified in His presence. But forever and ever and ever we will sing His praise. We will speak His praise. So why would we not be practicing that even now? Well, when we've arrived, but we've not arrived, which means we're not home yet, there's a necessity called holiness to be set apart unto God. There's the necessity of worship. Lastly, there's the necessity of empowerment. That's a really awesome account we find in the close of this chapter. Verse 13, Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho, That he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, No. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. 
And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What is my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now we could imagine why Joshua would have responded the way he did. They have spent years wandering in the wilderness, fighting one foe after the other, and have even had to ask the question among their own people, who's on the Lord's side? Because there were those who were supposed to be on the Lord's side who were not and who were killed. And now they're getting ready to march around Jericho. And they've already been out and spied out the, uh, the city of Jericho. So it's important to know, who, who is this guy? And Joshua's about to find out the answer to that. He's going to blow his mind. He's going to see that this is not merely an angelic presence. This is a divine presence. Uh, when he asked the question of, are you for us or for our, our adversaries? Uh, which side are you on? Notice the answer was no. Isn't it amazing how we try to get Jesus on our side? And his answer would be no. I tell you, one of the things I do as a foreign missionary here in North Carolina is to try to sort out these Duke and UNC fans and tell them, hey, Jesus is not endorsing either one of those. Whew, brother, we could start the invitation right now. Now, I have to say with humility, he's not endorsing the Kentucky Wildcats either. Those are earthly things. Uh, but sometimes we raise the bar on that a little bit, and we say, uh, uh, well, we know that, uh, that Jesus is not endorsing Bernie. But let me tell you, he's not wearing the Make America Great Again hat either. Now, some of you will turn me off right there. But here's why you need to listen. There's sin in both camps. I don't care you pick any politician, any party, any place. The fingerprints of fallenness are all over the place. Arrogance is all over the place. Human foolishness is all over the place. Why would Jesus get out and wallow in that kind of worldly mire when he came to lift us up out of it? Ultimately... This captain of the army of heavens is saying, I, I didn't come to endorse your cause. One great temptation that comes to every church and every Christian at almost any time is to pray as though we simply need Jesus to get on our side. And politicians do that all the time. Uh, local law enforcement in, in, endorsed Timbo's for sheriff or whatever it might be. I say that for comedy. Uh, we, we, we all the time want somebody to stand for us and try to make everybody else think that you're the man or you're the woman. Let me tell you, Jesus is not standing to say you're the man or that I'm the man or you're the woman. But that he's king of kings and Lord of lords. And if you want to know who's with who, the question is, are you with him? So when we go back and we read the text... Uh, we find when he asked the question, no, rather, I indeed now come as, uh, come now as captain of the host of the Lord. Now, the question can be raised, is this a theophany or a Christophany? You may say, say what? Is this God making his presence known or is this Jesus 
making his presence known pre-incarnate? There's two answers to that. Number one, we can't say with certainty. Number two, what difference does it really make? What we know is part of the Godhead has shown up on the scene to say, I'm here representing the army that brings the real victory. The host of heaven, the armies of heaven. And notice Joshua as a humble, we talked this morning about a humble leader. Notice what he did. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down. Now when John tried to do that to an angel, what was he told? Get up. So we know this is not an angel. That when he gets down on his face, we realize that's exactly where he needs to be. Uh, But Joshua is wise enough uh, to say, what has my Lord to say to his servant? Uh, That if this is a message from heaven, I want to know what it is. And it's pretty simple. When he says, remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now that sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? You remember what happened to Moses. His life was lived in 40-year increments, which gives me some hope. I've clicked past the first 40 and almost six years into the next 40. For 40 years, he was, uh, in essence, the stepson of Pharaoh. Grew up with a lavish lifestyle and wealth. But when he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave, he had a little too much of that. And he killed that Egyptian. The next day, he went out and tried to set him straight again. They said, what are you going to do, kill us like you killed him? And he realized the jig was up. So he ran for his life and he went and hid on the backside of the desert where he spent the next 40 years as a shepherd. Common, bottom rung kind of job. But God was up to something. Uh, There God was preparing him for the 40 years that would really matter. Think about that. From the time he was 80 to 120, that's when he did the most significant work. But God used those 40 years humbling him, introducing him to his wife, to his father-in-law, and preparing him for this great work that was yet to happen. But in that process out there in the desert, he saw a bush on fire, and well, that happens sometimes, but the difference was that this one didn't burn up. And when he approached it, he received that message. Take off your shoes, Moses. You're standing on holy ground. Which means what? You are in the presence of God. Uh, this, This is not a common occasion. This is not something to be trifled with. This is an encounter with the God of the universe. Humble yourself. One of the great parts of this passage in verse 15 says, and Joshua did so. He got his marching orders and he fulfilled them immediately. Now, some people read this text and they say, well, obviously this is a fragment. There was more to be told here and we lost the rest of it. That's what a a, a liberal or moderate scholar would say and wonder, you know, which one of the multiple sources of Joshua, as they always want to say, Uh, missed their peace. But conservative evangelical scholars who believe that this is the word of God, the way it's put together, say, no, no. This is exactly the point. It's not about what you're going to do near as much as who you are called to be. Don't miss that. 
If you miss the being and move on to the doing, you may simply live a life of hypocrisy. But if you focus on who I am in Christ Jesus, the doing will be taken care of. Don't miss that. If I understand who I am as a born-again child of God, filled with His Spirit, I will be launched like a jet off of a carrier. Man, I love to watch that on video. I've never been there before. But man, they bring those things out of the lineup, uh, get them ready, and they launch them, and they are gone right out over the ocean in something that seems unbelievable. I want to tell you, God is in the business of launching men, women, boys, and girls in ways that are even more phenomenal uh, than an F-18 flying off the end of a carrier and far more eternally significant. This is a reminder of who's who. That he's the master and Joshua's the servant. And when we forget to worship, those things get turned around. We start naming and claiming. Another problem with the prosperity gospel. We start telling God what he's going to do if he's a good God. And what's happened? All of a sudden, we've become God. We're calling the shots, and he's become the eternal step and fetch it. No such God exists in the pages of Scripture. That is a figment of man's imagination that somehow he could call the shots for the next page of activity for the God of the universe. It's simply not going to happen. You see, why is this happening here? He's being empowered by God's divine presence. As a reminder, don't you love that God doesn't merely say something once? When I was a kid, my dad had expectations for me that were a little high. You know, you're eight years old, son. Why don't you take some initiative? Well, dad, I'm eight years old. I really want to be watching cartoons. Uh, He really thought that I should have figured these things out. Why did I not? Because I was young and immature and willful. But I'm here to tell you, even as a 40-year-old man, my dad would call me up and repeat once again the things he had told me 35 years ago. Because he believed anything that was worth saying once was worth saying 20 times if we need to. Isn't it great that God doesn't say, well, son, I already told you once. What are you doing? We don't have to back up very far. If you back up to Joshua 1, uh, we find this very well-known chapter in, in verse 2. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea, toward the setting of the sun, will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you 
will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That in and of itself is already a repeat. What's God been doing for the last 40 years? He's led them with a cloud by day and a fire by night. Man, I wish I could have seen what that was like. It's neat enough seeing artists trying to paint what that must have looked like. God's been with them even in the midst of some of their greatest wickedness and rebellion. God was with them. He tells them as they prepare to go in and take the land, be strong and courageous. I'm with you wherever you go. And then what does he do? He shows up. What would you do, Theresa Baptist Church, if God showed up this week? Would you be taken by surprise? Or, or would you realize, wait a minute, this, this is what we've been praying for. This is what we've been seeking God for for a long time. And if he did show up, would you want to... Just sit back and cheer? Or would you be with Joshua falling down on your face in worship? Now, before we close, there's one thing that you need to understand. Joshua didn't stay there any more than Moses stayed at the burning bush. Once he had had that time of worship, he realized that worship is what's going to motivate us. Our understanding of who God is is going to direct everything else that comes from our lives. If you think that God is uh, a benevolent deity, a cosmic Santa Claus who just wants to send you gifts from time to time, you're going to live a very greedy existence. If you think that it's about works and not about grace, you're going to spend a lot of time bragging on yourself and reminding God how blessed he is to have you. If you understand it's by grace that you're a wretched sinner who deserves nothing but hell, your lips will overflow with the praise of such a gracious God who would send his son. And it's a reminder to us, Lord, we're about to cross the river. But when we get there, we realize this is not the end of the story. We're turning the page. We know you've got something else. We can't stop desiring to be holy. Christ has died for us. He's filled us with his spirit. He's made us somebody brand new. And now we've got to go demonstrate that to a dark, dead, lost, and dying world. If he saved us, he's worthy of all the praise that our lips can utter for all eternity. And by the way, that's not just in this building. In the average week, if this was the only place you worshipped, imagine how little worship you're doing in a week's time. Everything you do should be an offering of worship. Whether you're uh, at work, whether you're at home relaxing, you may be out playing on the golf course, you may be shopping at Walmart or Food Line, whatever it is, all of those things should be an outward expression of the inward presence of the Spirit of Almighty God. And all his empowerment. I'm going to tell you, when God shows up, things are going to change. And they're especially going to change for those who realize this, this is who we're dealing with. There have always been those who have decided to be a part of the fire department. 
the first great awakening when Jonathan Edwards was writing uh, about the great things that God was doing and moving in lives of people. There were men like Charles Chauncey, even his name sounds snobby, he was talking about all this excessive stuff that was happening. And Edwards, while he admitted that there had been excesses, he says, this is, these are the signs of a work of the Spirit of God. You be ready. If God sets this place on fire, there will be people show up with buckets and hoses. Who will say, that's enough of this foolishness? You look like a bunch of charismatics. What in the world are you talking We can't afford that. My word, my mama would roll over in her grave if we did that. Well, with all due respect to mama, that's not why we're here. We're here for Jesus. And if Jesus says go, we're going to go. If Jesus says, not here, but here, and start doing this brand new ministry, let's go. How in the world do you think My Life Matters became a reality? That hasn't been in existence for that many years. And the dream now is not to say, you could say, we've arrived. Man, we only got one more elementary school to go, and when we're there, we've graduated. No. We're already looking into into other counties and praying that God would open those doors. Uh, if we could go to Caswell County, man, pray for that. If we could go to Southern Virginia, pray for that. If God were to take one of the workers and replant us in some other place, that we'd be able to take that ministry with us and that one of these days we'd be able to look up and see what started as this humble little work in a little place called Roxborough has spread from sea to shining sea. While people wanted to talk it down and say this, that, and the other, God was driving the bus, and he took it exactly where he wanted to go. I'm going to tell you, that's exciting. It's a privilege just to be a part of that. Uh, I, I'm not, I'm not a, a great guitar player, but I like getting up there every week, even if I play wrong chords. Man, pff, praise God, we're leading these kids to sing about Jesus. We're leading them not only to hear, but to internalize the gospel even from the third grade. That's exciting. Sitting back in the bleachers, as we talked about this morning, leads you to become a critic. And being a critic makes you cold and self-righteous and indifferent and miserable. The people I've had the most difficulty with in the pastorate, guess who they are? They're the people who are already most miserable. And they believe in sharing. And they'll share their misery with you if you'll let them. But don't let them. When they show up with their fire hose, you tie a knot in it. You go do what people threatened to do to Donnie tonight. Disconnect them, man. Don't let them put out the Spirit's fire. The Bible warns us of that. Don't put it out. You kindle it to the glory of God. Oh, you're about to arrive to a next chapter, but friend, you haven't arrived. You've only just begun to see what God has for you. I'm excited for you. Let's seek him together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the great privilege of preaching your word. Uh, Lord, thank you for the excitement that comes not from the flesh, but by the working of your spirit. Uh, Lord, thank you that when you allow us to jump another hurdle, to turn another chapter, that, that we've not arrived, we're not home yet. Oh God, teach us that there's always a call to holiness, to be in this world but not of this world. Help us to see that there is an eternal call to worship you, 
to be hungry for your presence. And there is an ongoing need for your empowerment. Father, I pray that you would show up here this week. And that we wouldn't be surprised because that's what we've been asking for. Oh, God, that we would receive you, but that we wouldn't receive you pridefully, but that we would be with Joshua down on our faces, worshiping you. Oh, God, only you know exactly what you have planned for this church in the days ahead. But, Lord, as you unfold your will, change the hearts of your people so that they're ready to receive it. And in that process, Father, I pray that you'd save sinners. People who are not even a part of this church, no matter how much they attend it, because they're not in Christ. Oh, Lord, save them by your grace. So that we understand that revival produces spiritual awakening. That when God's people get right, souls will be saved. Oh, God, we eagerly anticipate that. And now as we sing this hymn of response, help us, Lord, to do nothing more, nothing less than exactly what your spirit is calling us to do even now. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.